Hey folks, we're back again, uh, this time with Dave Smith, the editor of UK Street Machine, um, formerly uh, editor of American Car Magazine and previously worked at um, uh, Classic American. Uh, we are very pleased to have Dave, he is a long-term friend of ours um, of uh, RetroRides and he is a lovely chap, so welcome Dave. <laughs> Hello David, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start immediately with our very first question, which is always... Right. Why cars? Why do you like cars? Do you know what? I do not know where it came from. Because uh, most of the people I speak to say, oh, I got it off my dad or my uncle, such a body, um, or, or the next door neighbour. Uh, but myself, I've no idea. Because nobody in my family is particularly car orientated. However, if you ask my mother, she will, with, with minimal prompting, tell you that ever since I was a baby... Um, cars were where it was at. I, I grew up in a tiny little, well, sorry, I was born in a tiny little town called Torpoint, which is um, on the mouth of the river that separates Devon and Cornwall. And there's a little car ferry. And apparently, when I was a baby, I would happily sit in my pushchair and just watch the cars come on and off the ferry. Um, so it's a family mystery. Nobody knows where it came from. Super. That that's actually the first time I think we've had someone uh, that's not had a, a family connection of some description, um, or you know, just generally been surrounded in a society by cars. Um, wow, <laughs> Absolutely, that's, that's good. I like that. That's uh, that, that's an organic evolution into a um, car um, enthusiasm <laughs> or a mystery throwback. One of the two. Yeah, well, yeah, it could be. What was what was your uh, what was your first car then? How did you uh, start out life, um, car wise? Uh, well, I suppose strictly speaking, my first car was when I was about eight. I got given a scrap Austin eighteen hundred Land Crab. Uh, I think my mother allowed me to have it just to shut me up and give me something to play with. Um, I did various eight year old things to it, such as paint it. Um, I do not recommend household emulsion for painting a Land Crab. Because the first time it rains, it's all on the deck. Um, as, a, as a young teen, I got given a Project Morris Minor van, um, which never really happened due to my... <laughs> not realising the significance of welding ability at the start of a project. It never happened. My first road car when I was 17 was a 50 quid Triumph Toledo. So that's where you have to uh, suddenly learn lots of home mechanicing very fast. Because, I mean, at the time, I mean, it was only 15 years old at the time, and it was rotten. I mean, I paid 50 quid for it, and I was robbed. It was <laughs> absolutely hanging. So, um, but when you're 17 and have no money, you know, you, you, you have to learn how to wave spanners at it <clears throat> in a hurry. Yeah, so yeah, I did. And, uh, yeah, I mean, 50 quid Toledo or not, when you're 17 and you've got your own wheels, that's, that's a big deal. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that makes, you, uh, makes you one of the mobile people, which is uh, when you're 17. Uh, exactly, and you also, you also get volunteered to be the driver whilst everybody else gets drunk. Um, yeah. Which, which is a bit grim at the time, but it does give you plenty of uh, blackmail ammunition. <laughs> I was. I, I never minded being a designated driver, and eventually I uh, um, uh, stopped drinking anyway. So I, uh, 
Um, I, I used to end up driving everywhere all the time, and I think that's partly why I got so into cars in that I found I enjoyed driving more than I enjoyed most other things. Weirdly. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I grew up on a farm. By this time, we'd moved up to the Midlands, and uh, I grew up on a farm. So all my friends live miles away. And, um, yeah, I kind of had to drive. So um, it was lucky that I did <laughs> enjoy cars and driving quite as much as I did. Otherwise, it would just have been a, a chore. But, uh, yeah, and, and it was from there. I mean, all through, like I say, since I was born, but all through my teens, I got more and more into cars. Um, to the extent that you know, the Toledo just happened to be some wheels, but what I really wanted was a 32 Ford or a 1967 Camaro. Uh, slightly out of the price range of a student. Yeah, and uh, the Toledo had to do. So it was still a lot of fun. So you've, um, you've worked at a number of magazines. So you've gone from being a 17-year-old with a slightly ropey uh, Toledo to um, being editor of Street Machine, but but previously um, American Car Magazine. So, what? How did that um, transition go? You you say you say you're a student. So did you go and study journalism, or did you end up just kind of falling into these into a role kinda, somewhere along the line? I kind of fell into it. Um, there's there's certainly no official qualifications behind me. I've got no letters after my name or anything like that. Um, yeah, it, it all started off in the 90s, like I say, since I was a teenager I bought Street Machine, Custom Car and Classic American, um, and I, I wrote bits and pieces for you know club magazines and fanzines, um, this was of course when fanzines were on paper, E. I remember when <laughs> uh, the Hot Rod Gazette and whatnot wrote for you, such publications as that, and um, yeah... I, Having written a few bits and bats, somebody said, oh, you should get into writing. And I thought, well, you know, seems like a good idea. You know, lots of nice indoor work, no heavy lifting. And, um, yeah, that one day, I mean, I actually applied for a job on Max Power, God help me, but I didn't get it. Um, and then one day I saw um, an ad for assistant editor on Classic American. Now, I'd been buying Classic American for years anyway. And I applied and uh, part of the job interview was um, the editor then, and, and still is, is Ben Clemenson. And he sat me down in a room and handed me slides. This was when, um, you know, most of the uh, magazine's photography was still shot on transparencies. And he handed me some slides and said, name these cars. So, you know, holding these little 35mm slides up to the light and saying, all right, that's a Plymouth Roadrunner, that's this, that's the other. And he said, right, well, that's part A done with. And Anyway, I made it down to the final two. And um, and then it transpired that the uh, the other applicant in the final two had fibbed about having a driving licence. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, defaulted into the job. And, and that was oh. in ni 1999. I'm wondering who that guy is. <laughs> I never did find uh, out, but I never did dig too hard either. No, no, I wouldn't dig too hard, just in case they got a vendetta. Um, <laughs> so, actually, let's rewind a, a second here. So, your 
you mentioned early on you had the Toledo and you really wanted um, a, a pre-war Ford or a Camaro or something. Yeah. Why, is, why are American cars um, appealing to you? Is there, is there something I've, about them that you, that you like so much? I've, I've no idea, although I suspect um, this comes from... <laughs> one of the stages in the progression was when I was a young lad. Uh, my dad had buy me Motorsport magazine. Um, you know, the, but even back then it was uh, it was kind of frightfully posh, really. Mm. And you'd read through it, and you'd read all about Formula One and and Le Mans and all these races. But to me, they were just completely inaccessible. They may as well have been racing space shuttles, for all they meant to me. But then you'd read about rallying, and I thought, yeah, I, I can recognise these cars. The, these are cars I've seen on my street uh, that don't quite look or sound like that, but. I can recognise these cars. And I got into rallying, and my favourite at the time, uh, early 80s this would be, was the TR7 V8. Because mm. when you went to uh, see the stages, my local stage of the Lombard RAC rally was at Sutton Park. And um, the TR7 V8 just sounded so much better than all the other cars. And I think that's where I got my love of V8s from, and that sort of segued into uh, American cars over the years. <laughs> Grad, yeah, gradually that, evolved into the king of the V8. The well, that's it, yeah. Of course, and every time you picked up a copy of uh, Street Machine or Custom Car, they were always uh, mighty fond of V8s. So, uh, I, I'm, I'm always a big fan of those um, uh, those kind of 70s uh, V8s where, where they're like, I don't know, like 7 litre V8s with 160 brake horsepower. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. The strangled smog motor, absolutely. But... Uh, at the time, I didn't understand that, but they didn't have to make a nice noise. They, they do make a nice noise. You can't deny <laughs> it. Even, even with their restricted power, they, they make a lovely noise. Exactly, yeah. Couldn't pull the skin off a pudding, but uh, they did sound the part. That's, that's, that's great. That, that's quite a nice um, sort of mixture as well, you know, being out on the Lombard RAC rally stages, but also having that uh, uh, passion for big, lumpy American cars. Absolutely, um, yeah. I spoke briefly to um, when I was speaking to Ian Kelly that we, we, we talked a little bit about the recognisability of race cars um, and it's one of the things that's kind of missing in modern racing in particular is you can't see the car that you can buy off the forecourt in the car that is racing anymore and I think that that's quite an, an important thing for a generation of people to be able to see you know your your neighbour's got a Chevette and here's one on a rally stage Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent agree. And I mean, it, that used to be the uh, <clears throat> the impetus for the manufacturers. You know, the old American phrase is "win on Sunday, sell on Monday." Well, it's hard to sell on Monday if what you're trying to sell looks bugger all like what was racing on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I did love that when you'd stand on a rally stage and see Mark II Escorts and yeah, Chevette HS and and all these TR7s, and you think, yes, these are cars I can see on my street. I can relate to these cars. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. So, but then, weirdly, that's kind of the opposite of the American car scene, because you generally don't see them very often. Um, how was life getting into that scene? Did did you find local people to to meet up with, or sort of where, where, did, where was your starting point? I, it, it took many, many years, and... I've been through a lot of things, different facets of the scene before I got to it. I went, I mean, 
on when I was 16, I went to Shakespeare County Raceway for the first time. And the event that was on there was the Morris Minor Owners Club Custom Chapter Day. And uh, because I had a Morris Minor van, I thought, I want to go along to that. Um, and it was, it was a real education. And a tremendous venue. I remember even then I loved it. Um, but after that, it was years before I went back to a drag strip. And in the meantime, I'd started going along to the local grass track. Uh, which up my way was Pennine Grass Track, which is up sort of near Ashbourne in Derby. And even there, my favourites, you know, the Class 10s were spectacular. There were these, again, American V8s or other very high-performance engines in these um, strange home-brewed little single-seat creations with, you know, probably about 500 brake horsepower, but they're about eight feet long. And they had about a foot of suspension travel at each corner, and they were fantastic. But the cars I most identified with were Class 2s, which were 1300cc saloons. And that's where you got old Escorts, and, um, you know, I think there was a Marina once, and an Anglia, and that's what I identified with. Um, and, yeah, it was a long time after that that I started going back to the drag strip. And it was there that I picked up my first American car. And which was your first American car? It was a 1973 Chevrolet Camaro. In white. Well, it was wow. actually a pair. Yeah, oh, that's uh, <coughs> that's no. a good start. It, it should have been, yes. <coughs> but this was an American car that had been in the UK for many, many years. <coughs> and it was pretty bloody crispy. Um, <laughs> and it came with a free spares car. Which was one of the another seventy three Camaro, which was one of those that had been built in Belgium. Um, so Belgium, Holland, where where did the where did they assemble? The, anyway, and Antwerp, that's where. And um, yeah, that was really crispy, and uh, again, just highlighted my lack of welding skill. Now, have you rectified the welding skill subsequently? Um. I can bang patches on to get through an MOT, but I'm, I'm not one of these TIG welding artists or anything like that. No, no, we've got, we've got a manifold on Instagram somewhere. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that's, hold, that's hold a the, whole different level. The, yeah, they, 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 are, they are art, whereas mine is... Well, the grinder is my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Just smooth out mistakes. Um, I think exactly, everyone, yeah. needs to grind, everyone needs a grinder somewhere along the line. Um, so I'm you've got into American cars you're now at uh, classic American um it feels like there's a natural progression to American car magazine and and to to follow that was was it a a thing that occurred naturally or or you know how how did that all come about I was I mean I was a classic American for seven or eight years and it, it was it was wonderful. I mean, you got to go to all the shows that you'd have been going to anyway. But in this case, I was getting paid for it, and that was tremendous. Um, and at the time, I was still you know buying and reading custom car and street machine. I mean, street machine was always my favourite magazine. And um, yeah, at some point around about two thousand and four, street machine morphed into American Car World. It morphed over a period of about a year. It was one of those where it was street machine featuring American car world. And that went on. And the American car bit was kind of a supplement in the middle. 
then it moved on to sort of been half and half then American Car took over and eventually Street Machine just disappeared so I was a classic American and American Car was our, our rival um, and then various th things of a political nature happened and in around 2009 a guy who'd left um, Classic American, he was a, a designer left Classic American under a bit of a cloud during a, a takeover of or, or a swap of publisher yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, he phoned me up out of the blue. I hadn't heard from him in years, and he said, um, "I've just bought American Car World. Would you like to do some writing for us?" Now, at the time, I was working behind the counter of my local motor factors, and I said, "Yeah, I really would." And uh, I came on board with uh, him and uh, the editor, who was another guy who'd left Classic American, and. Um, yeah, American Car World. Eventually, we dropped the world because that belonged to um, the, the publishing house, which published other things: Triumph World, Jaguar World, so on. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we dropped the world, and it just became American Car Magazine, and that was great. And then uh, that editor went on, and I got his job, and suddenly I was uh, editor of a car mag, and that was tremendous. That was in two thousand and ten, uh, and yeah, things were great. It was, uh, yeah, still going back around the shows, and I got to spend all day every day talking to people about American cars and and writing about them, and I honestly couldn't imagine anything I'd rather do. That's like a, a dream job, really. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, so then um, we, we're sort of kind of approaching the the Street Machine relaunch at this point. So I vague, I have vague memories of it, kind of being announced and rumoured and sort of there was before it actually got announced that it was relaunching there was a lot of I wonder what happened to Street Machine etc etc kind of conversations and then it was like oh yeah it turned into American Car World and American Car Magazine and like it just sort of disappeared and that that's the end of that and then suddenly there's somewhat more crispy rumours of it actually happening. Some so, of which so was started by that... me to be fair. Oh, yeah, I can imagine now that um, that, that that may have been uh, may have been seeded. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so, how did that come about? Like, what what was what was the conversation and and <clears throat> like? Well, he started the, the publishing house. By this time, the chap who uh, used to work for Classic American, who'd, who bought up American Car, had sort of sold out to uh, another publishing company, and the chaps who ran that was saying, oh, they published a load of other titles, but nothing to do with cars. And um, they said, oh, if you hear of any magazines for sale, coming up for sale as a going concern, we'd like to expand our portfolio and all this sort of tribe. And I said, well, you know what? When I was a lad, I really loved this magazine, Street Machine. It disappeared in about 2004. It could do with coming back. And as soon as I said it, I thought, right, that's the last I'll ever hear of that. Um, and lo and behold, I heard nothing except one guy in the room was listening. And then a year or two later, after that publishing company had folded, again, another phone call out the blue saying, um, I've just bought Street Machine. Do you want to be editor of Street Machine? And I said, well, I've wanted to be editor of Street Machine since I was like 14 years old. So, yes, please. <laughs> um, yeah, that was um, three, three and a half years ago now. 
That's a, that's incredible. So um, that will be that be Matty. I'm, uh, that's assuming. right. Yeah, yes. Um, so you're relaunching Street Machine, and you were a Street Machine reader, as were a lot of us. Um, and you must have had a weight of expectation both on yourself and externally on you from everybody. How 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 did you handle that? Did you just ignore it and forge ahead with your own kind <laughs> um, of plan? Kind like, of what, what did you do? I kind of knew what was to be expected in as much as it's one of those, you know, you, if, if you're going to do a focus group or some such rubbish, um, you've got to think, who is my ideal reader? Who is my ideal customer? And that was really easy because it's me. I, I wanted to put out the magazine that I would have wanted to see when I was 14 or 15. Um, so, yeah, I, I knew what the content should be and what it kind of shouldn't be and uh, which bits of the magazine I really liked and which I could have done without. I mean, obviously, I was reading the magazine through the 90s and you, you may remember that uh, Max Power was a spin-off, kind of spin-off from Street Machine. At least it came from the same publisher and yeah, ended up yeah, using some of the same yeah. stuff. And to my mind, it's like, right, I don't want any Max Power influence. I want it to be exactly what I remembered reading about when I was a lad, what, what shaped my tastes. So I did know what I wanted to see. However, I also know that um, things have moved on a touch from the 90s and I mean back then like I say in the 90s in the 80s and 90s when I was buying Street Machine a Mark 1 or Mark 2 Escort was a it was a chav car and Capris were like oh no that's that's just a Barry Boy car and now I mean <laughs> Barry, Bo Barry Boys is a phrase I haven't heard for a while <laughs> <laughs> this is it and uh, yeah, so how things have moved on, and I have to respect that. Um, and there's there's a whole world of possibilities in terms of content out there, and and of which you are very much a part. You're seen, and <laughs> but this is it. I mean, it's it is keeping that fine line between. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way of saying this, but. A number of readers have a very sort of narrow view. It's got to be a hot rod, it's got to be pre-war, it's got to be X or Y or Z. I don't think so. I think that there are no rules. That's part of what attracted me to the whole street machine scene, is that there are no rules. Um, there's good engineering and there's bad engineering. But other than that, there are no hard and fast rules. Um, so... You know, whereas a, a number of people might see, say, a, a Master MX-5. Oh, no, no, that, that's, a, that's a modern car. That is, that's far too modern for Street Machine. Well, hang on, the, the, the Master MX-5 is over 30 years old. Yeah. Um, if you think of the, the first issue of Street Machine that came out in 1979, had uh, a Mark II console on the cover, you may remember it, Henry Highrise. And that is one of the most iconic cars on the British scene. But at the time, it was only like 15 years old. And I think people conveniently forget this. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I picked up um, an old issue of Hot Car because there was um, a Trans Am van um, 
picture that turned up on the forum and I just wanted to know more about it and the only place to find more information about it was this one issue of Hot Car that it appeared in. So I right. bought that, imported that from the States, got it over. I'm looking at it. It's great, but it's um, whatever year it is, like a 1977 or something. Yeah. And the van is a 1976 van. It's a year old. So yeah. it's like to us, it's like this old school hot rod custom van thing. But at the time, it would have been like modifying <laughs> last year's transit. Well, it's uh, basically buying a brand new vehicle and, and doing crazy things yeah. to it. And, and I think that that's people kind of have a habit of forgetting that. Like the, the project cars in um, Street Machine often weren't particularly old. They'd be 10 years, maybe 15 at the most because they were cheap and it's like buying an early 2000s um saloon car now you can pick them up for two three hundred quid uh, and that's what effectively street machine was doing at least for their project cars at the time as well as featuring obviously pre-war rods and stuff like that well absolutely and again it comes back to accessibility because you know when i was even when i was a lad you know a, a pre-war ford hot rod or a 67 camaro was still out of my price range um, and it always has been, and chances are it always will be, because this, this is not a game to be in if you want to get rich. So <laughs> I'll make do with what I can get, and and that always seemed to be a, a good ethos of the, the the street machine ethos. I mean, it always used to be the catchphrase was dare to be different. Yeah. And that means you can work with what you've got. And if what you've got is you know, the the 10-year-old car that your mum let you have when you passed your test when you were 17, great. If what you've got happens to be something you've paid £100,000 for at auction, great. Work with what you've got, do something. And this is what I liked. It was the, it was the inclusivity. Um, I mean, a lot of people remember the 70s as the halcyon days of customising when you could, on every street you'd find a jacked up Mark III Cortina or a HB Viva with a furry dashboard and, and you know, Weller wheels and it, it's kind of grown from there but what I don't like to see is the snobbiness, that's not a real hot rod because and if you want to start a fight somewhere um, you know, at a, at a rod show, ask people to describe, to ask people to tell you what is a hot rod. What does hot rod mean? And and I hope you've bought a packed lunch because that one will run and run. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, we've seen the um, uh, slammed uh, Land Rover over the P6 chassis. I think it is. Um, that was right. basically that was built around that whole idea of the. It was actually. I'm directly at the NSRA. Sorry, chaps, if you're listening. Um, the idea that, oh, it has to be pre-40, whatever it is, pre-49, yeah. pre-47. Um, so they, they got um, a Series 1 Land Rover and slammed it over um, the, the chassis, and it like, sits right on the floor, and they drove it into the show, and they're like, that's exactly what this is. This is a pre-40, yep. it's a, it's a 47 um, Land Rover. And yeah, and it's got a flat windscreen, and it fits yeah, the letter of the rules. It's got it's got a V eight in it and everything, and <laughs> I think that that's kind of um, one of the dangers of having rules. It's it's not even so much you alienate people, but you then kind of open yourself not quite to ridicule, but it it, it you do start to look a little bit silly sometimes. Um, like people going on about classic Fords, they can only be like chrome bumper models and and all this kind of stuff. It's like well, that's not necessarily the case because time moves forwards 
So, um, uh, yeah, Absolutely. I'm glad you kind of kept that ethos. That's what I quite liked about Street Machine, as you say. The accessibility, to me, defines a Street Machine car. Absolutely. And uh, like you say about the, oh, it's not real unless it's X or Y or Z. Nonsense. Unless you're put, uh, trying to sell it as something that it's not, mm. um, then I say, yeah, who cares, really? I mean... Classic Fords to me, yeah, you're right. You, the the chrome or the metal bumper models, yeah, are to me classic Fords. However, now, I mean, have, have you seen the price of a nice early R, RS Turbo? Mm. Clearly, there are people who are who are champing at the bit for these cars now, and to them, that is a classic car. That's the car they remember from when they were a lad, and 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 you know before they had the family and the mortgage and times were lovely and ah oh, yeah back then i had an rs turbo and i was king of yeah. the streets um and that's wonderful it, it's just got to be whatever floats your boat yeah i, I think that in some ways actually that's the the um the difference from street machine to some other magazines and again there's no no right or wrong to this it's just the audience um targeting but your the street machine stuff does feel perhaps a little bit more um accessible uh for someone just starting out as well as obviously showing some really top quality um custom cars uh, alongside those things whereas a lot of magazines i think would only show the the highest level of modification that they can because there's a limited number of pages in their magazine um, I, I like that Street Machine will show something a little bit more accessible. Well, absolutely. I mean, and that that's, again, like I say, my ideal customer is me. And while I can appreciate, you know, a six-figure hot rod car from Billet as much as the next man, it, it goes back to the old um, Formula One motorsport magazine. It's It's beautiful to look at, but completely unachievable for me. Whereas, turn a couple of pages and there's a guy with a beetle who's done something absolutely fantastic, but he's got maybe four grand in it. Mm. And I think that's almost as much of an achievement as as the six-figure hot rod. Um, I say almost as much. It's a greater achievement. You've achieved more with fewer resources. And, and a lot more hard graft and a lot more hours and a lot more ideas. And... There's room for everybody. The scene isn't big enough by any stretch to be subdividing everybody down into little niches and pigeonholes. And I think that the, <laughs> I think we it's at high time we all realise this is that there's so many outside forces, arbitrary forces acting upon the what we'd call the scene. That yeah, that there's no room for division anymore. Yeah, I think that that's that's a, a fair point. I think when like sort of peak car interest size, probably, well, it goes up and down, obviously, but um, like the seventies was huge, and then um, again, kind of tail end of the nineties, early two thousands, that whole Max Power era, um, still had quite a lot of other things going on as well. Everything was quite buoyant at the time. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and and I think you could afford the kind of pairing down and divisions then but yeah it's interesting that nowadays you're right i think that perhaps it's uh um it, it's it's not the time to to be splitting things out and i think in many ways it's not like the, the 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 community has kind of come a bit more 
together in its appreciation of stuff like we you know our, our little show has uh hot rods and custom cars turn up of various sorts alongside everything else but i, I think people <laughs> i like the way you say your your little show as if it doesn't phil shelsley walsh or or goodwood yeah. which i've yet to get to but sorry do uh, carry on <laughs> that's right uh, um but uh yeah I, but i think also you'll see people with more modern stuff going along to like whatever nostalgia drags or 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 you know old warden wheels day stuff like that that um perhaps they might not have gone to before but now they're that everything's compressed a little bit and i think that's only a healthy thing i think that's a great thing um so out of all of that how do you pick your content so you're, you're you've got a, a an empty magazine uh layout in some description and you've got to decide yeah. what's going in it so out of that whole mass of stuff how are you, how are you picking it um it, it's tricky but i'll try and include as broad a spread of years and styles as I can. I mean, normally in a magazine there's, say, three main feature cars. Um, so if, if one's American, then at least one of the others has got to be British. Um, and if one is clearly a really high-dollar high build, then I'll try and offset it with something that's a lot more bu budget. And, yeah, it, it, it's kind of... <laughs> it's difficult in every issue to try and represent the broadness of the spectrum um, and it is often trying to offset one thing against another I mean I could fill a magazine every month with 32 Fords I could fill it with 60s Mustangs no problem um, but that doesn't show how broad the scene is and then you got completely left field things that take everybody by surprise and the readers love them I don't know if you saw a couple of issues ago, we had a guy with a late 60s Skoda MB1000. Mm. And in the back, hanging out the back by a considerable margin, was an air-cooled Tatra V8. That now stuff. that guy, <laughs> that guy is clearly bonkers. But I thought that was wonderful. And he built it all himself. And my hat is right off to anybody who can conceive of anything that crazy. Um, you know, I, I love a restored 68 Mustang Fastback as much as the next man. But if it's restored to factory spec, then that, that's a very tight brief. Whereas this guy clearly has no briefs at all, for want of a better <laughs> word. <laughs> and, and just thought, what's the, what's the craziest thing I can build in my yard? A rear-engine car with a, with a two-and-a-half-litre air-cooled V8. Yeah, I'll build that. That'll be safe and sensible. And just went and did it. And there are so many other aspects to it, to the scene. And so many of them are, are probably more retro-orientated than, than custom or hot rod-orientated. I mean, we've had some... We had a guy not so long back with a Toyota Cressida, or Cressida. And that was a tremendous... It had a Lexus straight six in it. And that was wonderful. But who the hell would think hot rod equals Toyota Cressida? It's yeah, <laughs> and yet you look at it and you think the way he's built that, the, the attention to detail, the engineering that's gone into it, you cannot take a damn thing away from that guy. It's it's a wonderful machine. I think it's interesting as well with some of the hot rod guys. They're kind of um, like the old school hot rod guys. They're seeing cars that would have been modern to them um, being modified in the way that they're modifying cars that 
a classic to them, if you see what I mean. So they're modifying 30s and, 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 and stuff that was perhaps built before they were born but was influencing them when they were growing up. But at the same time, they may have had uh, a Cressida or, or, or something or not even bothered with it because it was ridiculous Japanese cars. But now this generation of people is modifying stuff like this. They're looking at them with fresh eyes, which I think is quite a nice thing to put in front of them. And Street Machine is managing to do that is... You know, here's these things that you've probably forgotten about or wish to forget about, and well, there's this new generation exactly, of people yeah. doing things to it. This is it. It is a case of, you know, you broaden your outlook. Um, because, yes, you might have a 32 Ford tucked away in the garage, but look, here comes a Mark V Cortina, um, which in its day was the most mediocre car on the road, but now... You look at it, and they stand out a mile, and it's wow, uh, Mark Five Cortina. I remember I had one of them when I was eighteen, and so on and so forth. Um, <laughs> the mediocre has suddenly become really special and very different, and stands out a mile. Yeah, definitely. And it, that forces you to take a new look at it. I think. Yeah, because you're they're not ubiquitous anymore, so you get to get to look at them with uh, with new eyes. Um, so you're you're. It, it's good to be pulling content from um, different places. Is there anywhere you kind of haven't gone yet? Like a car you've gone, oh, I kind of want to put that in, but I know that's going to upset people. Um, uh, yeah, there have been a few. Um, I mean, a, a photographer the other day said, um, oh, it's, it's an Ultima, one of those sort of mid-engined mm. um, uh, Le Mans-style cars. And I thought, that's probably pushing a bit. Um I've had one guy say, oh, I've got a feature car here for you. Um, it appeared in Max Power back in 2001. And I looked at the photos and I thought, if I put that in Street Machine, I'm going to get strung up. <laughs> um, however, one day, Max Power will be nostalgia. You know, I'm sure funny, there are people know. now thinking of, thinking of uh, Max Power with the same rose-tinted glasses I thought of Street Machine in the 80s. Absolutely, I can guarantee you that's happening because um, I've uh, th there's a uh, Instagram account called Max Power Reunion, and they right. post up old Max Power cars and and features and like where are they now and all that kind of stuff, and they get a huge response. And weirdly, I, I cause a couple of my friends have been sort of tagged in their things, and I, I kind of looked at it, and I now follow that because. It's an insight into a scene that I very much was not a part of. I like it was the opposite of everything i liked about cars <laughs> yeah but given the time and the space and actually the, the very cherry-picked nature of it you know it's not you know 50 cars an issue it's just this one car from this one issue that everyone remembers and yeah i'm sort of like appreciating it in a way which i didn't before so i think it may well come around i, I think it's a hard sell with like the insane body kits and the um, stereo cars that, that that were there just for for the noise, but there there are gems in there that have stood the test of time. That you look at now and you go, oh, actually, you know what? That's not bad. In fact, I shared one the other day. There was um, uh, a four by four Cosworth running gear in um, a Capri, and it yeah. was beautifully done. It was like and that, and that would car. drop right into Street Machine. Yeah, exactly. So so they're out there, and and I think that the, a bit of distance gives you a bit of. Um, a bit of appreciation. It's a bit like the nostalgia stuff. In fact, you've you've put a few of these in your in the magazine. You, you've you've got these kind of very leery seventies customs with the 
the, you know, they're all jacked up at the back, and you've got like the polished um, diff cover and all of that kind of stuff. The jagged, oh Raptor yeah, and all with, that. The, with the red light on it, yeah, yeah, and... all of that stuff. And, but in the eighties and nineties, that was just horrible, and you hated it. But now you look at it, and you're like, actually, that's pretty cool. Well, fashion is cyclic, and like I say, the, the the way you feel about max power cars is the same way I feel about max power cars. However, one day they'll come back around. Um, but it's like right at the minute, there's been a big resurgence of interest in old custom cars. Uh, and I mean, from the, the 70s and early 80s, the, the, the heyday of the indoor show. And they keep coming back out of the woodwork. I mean, there's, there's one guy, specifically on the enough, who did a great series of recreations. And I mean, these recreations were bloody perfect. Um, but there are a lot of the original um, custom and show cars that have been hidden away under tarps in garages for decades are suddenly coming back out and being rebuilt to the extent that right at the minute half of the new builds that are going on are old builds and there are some survivors out there obviously ones that have never really left the scene Uh, a couple of crazy Ian Etheridge paint job cars there's um, one was in an early issue of the uh, Relaunch Street Machine, a Capri called Venom. And there was a Pontiac called Celestial, um, which uh, currently, I believe, lives up in Southport, or uh, not Southport, somewhere in Lancashire, Morecambe, sorry. And you look at them and you think, what drugs were they on when they built that car? It's just way out there. Um, <clears throat> I mean, this, um, this Pontiac Trans Am, has a fin on the boot lid like a D-type Jag, and all the front end's been rearranged, and there are tubes and side pipes, and the craziest paint job you could ever conceive. And it survived, even though for the probably the intervening 30 years, it's, you know, oh, it's offending my eyes. But now, it's a, an amazing Survivor original custom car. And... <laughs> people are going crazy for them again yeah it, it's really interesting that, that it's sort of come around that there's sort of enough distance that like the fashions that drove it no longer matter so it's just the car in and of itself and you look at it and it's aesthetically pleasing or at least interesting we should say um definitely great, interesting <laughs> But it's kind of also possibly the antithesis of modern cars. Sorry, modern car people. Um, but like the, the, they're all grey and black and maybe blue if you're lucky. And it, it's kind of the opposite of that, to have this ridiculously loud, larry car. I think it's part of the reason why people like Bozuku cars so much, that they've managed to bleed out into the consciousness of the wider car community because they're the opposite yeah. of what's out there um, for you to it's, buy off yeah. the forecourt. I mean, I'm I'm damn sure that every generation for the past hundred years have said, "Ooh, cars today all look the same." Mm, and I'm sorry, yeah. I'm 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 now well into middle age. I'm an old fart. I can say that all cars today look the same. And I think that things like you said, what, what you said, the Busazuku cars and and these wild seventies customs are they're sort of subverting that. They're sort of saying, well, well, you're all trying to climb into your cookie-cutter saloons or, or SUVs or crossovers now, I suppose. Look, here's a car with loads of 
crazy guff added to it and an exhaust pipe that sticks six feet up in the air for no reason or a car with 150 different shades of paint and 18 layers of lacquer on it why because i can and because nobody else will <laughs> and if <laughs> if if i don't then i'm worried i'm going to become as dull as you that'll be why the max power cars are going to come back around well absolutely <laughs> exactly and i mean like i say they, they did nothing for me but it was a powerful movement in its day people yeah, got sure. off their got off their backsides and, and went to these cruises and yeah yeah i know the the cruises had a bit of a reputation for you know attracting the coppers yes but that, then you talk to these guys who say oh it's not like it was in my day in the 70s when we went to the chelsea cruise and did burnouts up and down the king's road yeah, which is the exa- exactly people. the sort of behaviour you're now calling these guys for doing. <laughs> um, actually, this segues a little bit into uh, my question from Ian Kelly for you, um, which was, um, do you see um, EV uh, electric conversions as a positive future trend for the old car scene or not? <laughs> which is a, a debating uh, question. It certainly is. And I mean... There's no way around it. Electric is the future, whether we like it or not. And when that day comes, um, I think a true customiser, a true hot rodder will adapt. I mean, there are already people building cars, mostly for shows such as SEMA. Electric hot rods, electric muscle cars. Chevrolet will sell you a package to drop an electric motor directly into your muscle car. It'll bolt up. It'll bolt up to the automatic gearbox. And away you go. People are looking around the edges. I think the only real issue I can see is that to to what I'll, you know, us proper petrol heads, it's the sound. The sound of a V8. The sound of a highly tuned six-pot turbo. You can't replace it. I don't care how clever your... Uh, your your car is if if it plays the noise of a big block through the speakers that is that is just alcohol free beer isn't it you need <laughs> yeah. somebody who values the noise of a car so much finding that the current one makes no noise at all is i suppose anathema i i find um my thought process with this is there's going to be a generation of people for whom that that electric motor whine eventually becomes the equivalent, because if you hear a high-powered electric race car as they sort of launch and, and and stuff, they they make a very distinctive noise that's very different to what you hear in an electric road car, and I wonder if that there'll be a generation where eventually that's a thing. They'll be like, oh yeah, listen to that whine, and then yeah, you hear it coming and you can identify it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe, I, I think maybe. That, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the that's the thing. Right at the minute, is you know, all, all your your hardcore hot rodders are going, oh, electric car, bloody scale electrics. Um, no, it, it's V8s for me. And as long as somebody's still digging dinosaur juice out of the ground and turning it into petrol, they will be um, petrol heads. Mm. But eventually, there's no getting away from it. One one day long after my time petrol would just be you know something you tell your grandkids about yeah and... my thought with that is that um horses didn't disappear we just stopped using them as much but people that were turned into a about hobby. horse yeah 
people that are enthusiastic about horses are still enthusiastic about horses and bicycles and penny farthings and whatever else. So absolutely, that, yeah, that, that will be supported in some manner, and not just in a museum. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the only thing is that you know future governments could well ban internal combustion in the name of the environment. Uh, they're not likely to ban horses or penny farthings. Uh, but other than that, yeah, you're dead right. It's, it's Like you say, a horse has become, uh, I'll say a hobby. I'm, I'm, I'm sure horse lovers out there would probably throw dung at me for saying that. It's a way but, of life. Um, Yes, absolutely. In the same way that petrol heads see cars. Yeah, for sure. Um, interestingly, the last car museum I was in um, had an electric car in it from um, 1906. So that was pretty impressive. One of, oh, the, one yeah. of the very <laughs> very first cars ever produced. Um, it was in um, Auto World in Belgium, and uh, yeah, the, the, and and it, it was battery as well. It wasn't anything um, different to what's happening now. And you, uh, to go further, you'd just put new batteries in it, which is. Uh, I was talking to a designer the other day, and they were saying that's kind of one of the things they've been looking at. Instead of charging, you kind of swap out your batteries at stations um, uh, to to keep going, and that's amazing that the technology just sort of goes round and round and round. And round. Absolutely, and and there was a point back then. I think it was in the early part of the twentieth century or the very very late nineteenth, uh, where. Most of the cars on the well, most of the cars sold in one given year were electric. Um, however, it's now new technology. It's now, yeah. it's now you know the, the very latest tech, um, and it's not just a revival of something that happened a hundred odd years ago. Yeah, but um, a path hmm. we didn't go down. So what exactly. would you like to see the, more the of Betamax in cars? Of, uh, the Betamax, yeah, the Betamax yeah. cars. <laughs> yeah. um, what would you like to see more of in um, cars? What would you like to see people building more of in the UK? <sighs> well, whatever takes their fancy. I mean, I know what's pushing what I your love. buttons. Then, what, what would you, what would if someone if someone came to you and said, "Dave, I got the I got your perfect car for your next issue," what what would that be? Um. Well, unfortunately, that would be kind of a gestalt of about a dozen different cars, because <laughs> I mean, like I say, yes, you got your your classical classic hot rods, if you will. You've got your muscle cars, both wonderful. I'd happily own either, and then you've got your your, your crazy left field stuff. And I, I love the fact that it's the left field stuff that continues to surprise me. Um, again, going back to the guy with the Cressida, that really surprised me, and. Um, Who'd have thought it? So it, it, if if somebody comes up to me with a car that makes me go, wow, I'd never have thought of that, that's what really floats my boat. I mean, I saw, a, a posted on our Facebook page the other day, there's an advert on Facebook Marketplace for an Austin 3-litre. You know, one of those big, sort of like, Superland crabs with a 3-litre yeah. engine. And he's put bubble arches on it and painted it Rothman's colours. Brilliant! <laughs> Who the hell had the thought of that? And I saw that and I thought, oh yeah, I want a bit of that. Um, but the worst thing that could happen to me, I think, in life is to win the lottery. Because uh, I'd end up with like a thousand cars that I've seen that I've gone, yeah, I want that, and I'd be living in a tent. <laughs> so the, there is no simple answer to that question. I'll know it when I see it. 
uh, our mutual uh, friend Simon Coulson has um, a great plan for a lottery win, which is to open up a car museum for British modifying and gradually accumulate the older cars, obviously take them out to events and stuff, but all of those iconic cars, gradually accumulate them. Uh, So let's do that with a lottery win. That'd be great. Let's, yeah. We'll, we'll pool it and do exactly that because that sounds ideal. A sort of a, a sort of a, cust- a custom kibbutz. I I, uh, I recently won um, a lucky dip. I don't know when that's happening, but um, maybe maybe this is my time. Um, so we de- we talked a little bit about actually uh, this with the uh, with the old electrical stuff. What what are your challenges are you seeing for the custom car community in the UK of of all sorts? Um. Well, I think twofold. One is coming from up on high, and uh, you know, as uh, again we press on towards electrification, and uh, it's it's almost like the the people who love petrol or love diesel, for that matter, uh, it's it's almost like we're going to be vilified. You know, we we aren't just people who really like cars for the sake of loving machinery and and enjoying the cars for what they are. Um, if we're not careful, we're going to get painted as the evil buggers who are out to do nothing but destroy the environment. Um, depending on who is saying these things and what their agenda is, uh, which is never a good thing. The other is. I think we, my my end of the scene here desperately needs to sort of widen its viewpoint, and realise that all different branches of the car scene we're all kind of pulling in the same direction. And as I said earlier, we can't afford to be dividing ourselves into pigeonholes. We're all car enthusiasts. We all want roughly the same thing. We need to we need to band together. Um, and and we can't be doing with these. Uh, oh, that's not a real hot rod because we can't be. Oh no, no, we you can't let him in. That's a mark to escort. It. We all need to to realise. Oh, I think that all of us car enthusiasts need to provide a united front. Which sounds a bit Citizen Smith. I do apologise. Oh, that's but fine. It, <laughs> but it 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 it, do, it is. You know, time to time to realise that there's we are all pulling in the same direction, and that think, um, car fans are car fans no matter what they love. Really, for for your first point, um, I, I think I have a weird thing. Johnny Smith actually, I, I spoke to him about this a while ago. I don't even know if this was in the podcast or if it was just a conversation we were having. But he was saying that the thing about having electric cars is as long as kind of petrol isn't legislated off the road or diesel, it actually kind of gives a bit of breathing room to car enthusiasts because suddenly the weight of all of the fossil fuel burning is not on this handful of enthusiasts that are are, are kind of running their cars at weekends and going motorsport of some description because the majority of cars on the road are now, you know, electric and we know that's not carbon neutral but full life cycle theoretically is is better um my uh my wife works in um, environmental science so apparently it it actually is i can't even argue that point um so um uh the uh the full life cycle of, of, of the modern electric car is 
going to be better for the environment but that gives us space to to actually run some petrol cars because there's less of them and it's fine that's the argument um but it's whether or not the way as you say the powers that be behave um can help us do that and in the second point that actually feeds into the first and you're right that we should be united in a in a manner because we are car enthusiasts um and as a whole we're uh, under threat it feels too much but we should at least be in a position to be able to in a united manner go no this is what we think and be able to put that forward and i don't think there's really that many bodies representing the enthusiast in the uk you're right probably should be this is it and i remember a couple of years ago there was um there were a few organizations started up mainly in response to new government legislation especially around things like um iva mm. which i think is is a threat that hasn't yet particularly reared its ugly head uh, in terms of custom cars mainly because it seems that nobody is a hundred percent sure of what the rules are um in terms of you know if if you've modified your vehicle at all well what do you class as modified if you, if you have a mark one cortina and it's on radial tires is that a modified vehicle uh and not to begin leaning on the i've cut the bulkhead and transmission tunnel out of my car to fit a sudden great v8 um have i modified my monocoque <laughs> yeah well yes but unless somebody comes around to check it we'll have to take your word for it and at the minute everything is so very gray that nobody really knows the answers consequently there's nothing to support or protest but one day, I, I fear there will be. And who is who is representing the who is representing the car enthusiasts? Is it a bunch of um, you know disparate uh, groups who are more likely to be fighting against each other? Is it just a handful of keyboard warriors on Facebook, or is it going to be a concerted effort to to um, put our points across, as you said, to say here we are, this is what we do. We're not out to destroy the environment. You know, we don't chop up whales at a weekend. It's, we need to be, I'm not going to say thump our tub and demand to be listened to, but at least say, you know, do you realise what we're here for, what we're about? I think in some ways America's got it a little bit better because they've got SEMA and have had for a very long time. A very and powerful it, lobby, yeah. Uh, that's the thing we, we we know them from the show and all that kind of stuff but like at the heart of it they are there representing the um aftermarket equipment manufacturers which is a huge business obviously in the states and which is why at SEMA you'll see everything from brand new cars um through to hot rods and and some of the biggest names come out there because they're they're they are broad they cover everything um and there's nothing like that as far as i can see in in the the uk and or really in europe i had a quick look around a couple of years ago and there was some sort of bodies but they seem very much more in the um representing oem manufacturers suppliers rather than aftermarket um uh, sort of seem to forget that that is a, a massive part of um the, the car community also in terms of bringing talent through to the to the oem people um so yeah i think if i was to get on a, a soapbox it wouldn't be so much as um around what needed to be said it would be more around 
there needs to be an organization that says this and then there's kind of like an opening for something like that somewhere along the line and and as much for the um custom car community as for people that are buying a brand new car and dropping it on air ride like we all need representation really absolutely yes and i think that is part of the problem is that hitherto trying to get all these different aspects of the scene together must have been like herding ferrets and yeah. and getting everybody to to arrange themselves and and not bicker and and look at the bigger picture and yeah that's kind of what needs to happen and that's what needs representation i mean obviously your your oems and 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 franchises have their big powerful trade lobby the smmt but for a country that prides itself on its motorsport uh, technology and heritage and this that and the other we don't seem to be looking after it as well as we should. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change, change atmosphere because we got, we got dark. We got, we got dark. He did rather, didn't yeah. he? I do apologise. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's all right. If my, my, my questions led in that direction, and uh, there's no need to be dark. We got, uh, we got exciting cars. So I'm gonna, um, I'm I'll gonna get Dan off my soapbox then. Oh, sorry, I have to put it away. You can, you can do it on yeah. one of your Facebook lives later on. Um, <laughs> so you're. Uh, I'm going to ask you one of my kind of emergency questions just because I like them because um, it would put a nice break after the, uh, the, uh, the, the politics of that. So what's the fastest you've been in a car? Oh, crikey. Um, I suspect I've been driven around a couple of racetracks. I've, I've, I've driven myself around a couple of racetracks, but that's not amounted to much. I have had a couple of uh, more, far more talented people passenger me around uh, racetracks. And obviously, I don't know what speed it was, but to my bladder it felt like about 300 mile an hour um, on the road I suspect it was in a Roush Mustang on the the uh, M6 Toll which I was under the uh, man in the pub impression was um, not particularly well patrolled by the coppers and I really really needed to get to the services for a wee that's my story and I'm sticking Officer. to it and I think <laughs> yes <laughs> and uh, I think that was about 145 but it was a borrowed car and and at that point I noticed that the uh, fiberglass bonnet was sort of bowing in the middle and I thought I, w I want to return this car in the same shape as I borrowed it so I backed off a bit at that point how very responsible <laughs> <laughs> what's the uh, what's the scariest car you've been in it doesn't have to be a fast um, car. It could just be something that was lashed together. <laughs> pretty much any car I've ever owned. I've Over the years, I've owned probably about 150 cars, and it's been the most frightening catalogue of crap you'd ever wish not to read through. <laughs> um, so kind of any car I've ever owned is likely to fall into that. In terms of being under somebody else's control, it was probably a Fiat 126 with an 1100cc Yamaha engine in. Uh, which, uh, yeah, the owner took me out for a, a quick spin, but where he lived was on the sort of the reclaimed land on Merseyside, so all the roads were dead straight for about a quarter of a mile, then a 90 degree turn, then dead straight for another quarter mile, then a 90 degree turn, with drainage ditches on either side. That was bicycle clips time. 
because <laughs> with a with a with a lot diff and a motor a motorbike engine and a car that weighed about 400 kilos empty it didn't want to turn so that each of those 90 degree bends was an adventure in itself <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll happily leave that to uh, somebody else's experience i was going to ask you what car you regret selling but um and maybe I should ask you which cars you regret buying, and, and you can list all of them. <laughs> pretty much all of them I've regretted buying almost instantly after having parted with money. Um, you cook buyers regret straight away. <laughs> That's it. I, I, I don't know why I bothered buying the car. I should have just gone straight to the regret and saved myself some money. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had a, a long-term passion for Triumph Dolomites, which uh, not not sprints or anything particularly interesting, just cheap 1500s they were lovely um the the best car i've ever bought and the one i can't bring myself to part with was a 1975 uh, 1979 chevy el camino um yeah which was my daily driver for about one and a half years and then it came to mot time and i realized that it needed everything so i parked it up awaiting the day when i'd have the time and money to actually do it that was ten and a half years ago, and it's still exactly where I parked it. And nothing's getting better. Uh, is it getting worse? In though? fact, I'd suggest it's getting worse, which is something uh, of a disappointment to me. Ah, oh, but damn, uh, damn you, time, damn you! <laughs> exactly, it comes to us all. But, but yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's is that, is that it's, ever going to get done? Do you think? Are you going to get there? I sincerely hope so. It'll also be the last thing I ever sell. You're, My kidneys will go before friends. the El Camino. <laughs> I have, yes, and and, and, uh, and I don't really want to impose upon their charity any more than I absolutely have to. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I would very much love to uh, bring that Camino out again. Ah, oh, super. Well, we look forward to that day. So um, it's a strange year. Um, we're getting another street machine at some point, I'm assuming. Um, is that that's happening? I, yes, and um, I was talking about it with Matty today. I was sincerely hoping that it's going to be at the end of next month the september issue out at the end of august um obviously there are various challenges to this um not least of which is um trying to get a load of the advertisers back on board because yeah, hard work. Uh, you know, everybody has been hit hard by um the, the events of the past couple of months and obviously being a magazine a lot of our advertisers at this time of year will be events which most of which are cancelled or postponed or whatever and then there are you know shops that have shops and uh, companies that have been shut and had to furlough the workers so they're doing nothing there were importers who've really suffered from the uh, dip in the exchange rates and yeah suddenly all the advertisers are uh, well they have been for the past few months battening down the hatches and no advertisers means no mag yeah. um yeah it's, uh, it's 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 not an easy game to be in at the best of times it, yeah, as, as not, you, you yeah as you well know as, as i well know <laughs> it's quite difficult to launch <laughs> magazines um yes it's very it's very easy to fail at launching magazines though um so it's like yeah, the, old, I mean, the I, old joke about how to become a millionaire in publishing yeah quite quite, quite. start with five million and wait uh, I, I think um, 
yeah hopefully uh we, we, we can uh, we can get you uh back on track because uh we, we do love our street machine magazine um no, you're also too. doing lots of um you do your weekly stuff on facebook at the moment so um which i think you're actually going to do after this even though this will come out next tuesday um <laughs> that's, that's right shortly i shall be doing yeah i do the facebook um the lives on the uh, street machine magazine uk facebook page it, it, you started off as a once a month thing um but when lockdown came in um i thought i, I say i thought it, it's my missus who's far more savvy with all this sort of thing than i am she said i should i should do these lives basically to, to put a, a face to things and i started doing them weekly uh during lockdown because people had bugger all else to do but having not thought it through i thought well that also means i've got bugger all to talk about <laughs> however i've been delighted to be proved wrong and people always find something to talk about and it's very entertaining and you get to hear about what's going on out there then there's I think uh, people are missing car chat people, i found that with people listening to this um hello people listening to this right now um that <laughs> people are missing having someone to talk to about cars even if they're just sort of sitting on the edge of a conversation enjoying the conversation Um, exactly and obviously you know up until uh, easter you'd go out for your to to, to shows at weekends you go out to the weekly weeknight cruise at the pub or the the sunday morning breakfast meet or whatever else and meet your friends and banter about cars and all of a sudden it's like nope nope sit at home stay at home don't move don't even look through the letterbox and yeah we've all missed the car banter and and yeah. if it can't be uh, if it can't be live and face to face then uh, m- media such as this is is may as well make good use of it rather than post uh, pictures of your breakfast yes i've also found that um, i've been buying magazines more um which uh um, I've been buying classic and sports car again. Sorry, rival publications. I, I don't suppose that's a rival for Street Machine, um, but I've been buying it again uh, because it's kind of it's filling a gap of looking at cars. I, I wouldn't, I don't really look at on the internet or, or, or have any connection with on the internet. But at a car show, I would have a, a browse around and a look at. And um, yeah, I find it um, it's really interesting, kind of the, the the changing approach to consuming stuff that this weird period we find ourselves in has has forced well, upon you, us but i'm hoping it continues like yeah. some of it's really good yeah <laughs> like really enjoy this it. is it you, you you've broadened broadened your horizons and a damn good idea i mean uh, on the other side of that of course is that since lockdown there have been a number of magazines disappear yeah that's really sad. um uh, th- th- this was like the straw that broke the camel's back um and that's a real real shame because if there's one thing i don't want to see less of it's print um, not not that I've got a vested interest or anything, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a shame. And and it, you go and I, mean, I looked around the shops the other day, and there are a lot of gaps on the magazine shelves. Yeah, it's not and it's not mine, just mine being one of them. Oh, good well, yeah. God, no, no, it's everything. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a it's a difficult time for publishing. So support print because it's actually where um, a lot of the stuff you find on the internet comes from. Um, so, uh, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that, I the, that, like I say, I grew up with with centerfolds from Street Machine and whatnot pinned to my wall. See, that, that's, <laughs> paper lasts a long time, unless you <laughs> put it in direct sunlight. In which case, yeah, <laughs> paper does last a long time. As I say, the number of people I still meet who say, hey, "I've got every issue since number one in 1979." It's, um, it's amazing. So yeah, 
there are a lot of people who live in absolute fire traps because they've kept every magazine they've ever bought. <laughs> Simon <laughs> and his car archive is a case in point. Um, yeah, exactly. Right, I, yeah. I, I will I will leave it there because we are we are approaching um, our time. So um, as, as and when you can um, support um, Dave and the uh, lovely uh, Street Machine uh, family for um, continuing to soldier away and broaden people's horizons. Nowadays, you have a vanishingly um, small amount of places to find the sort of cars that we like, and Street Machine is one of those places. Um, and follow them on Facebook, and they have an Instagram account, which I complain at them, they don't update often enough, um, but they also have that. Um, and um, yes, thank you very much uh, for your time, Dave. That has been very enjoyable. No, thank you, David. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. And thanks to anybody who's listened this far. Yeah, well, well done. Congratulations. Um, and this is the end. <laughs>